Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Innovation Forum is a UK-based, purpose-driven company that works in the areas of food, agriculture, land use, plastics, apparel and textiles, as well as Scope 3 GHG emissions. That means bringing together business executives with civil society groups, governments, academics and other experts to find solutions to difficult supply chain challenges. Innovation Forum does this via online meetings, research conferences, webinars, podcasts, and pre-COVID face-to-face summits. Check out their regular podcasts at innovationforum.co.uk. I'm very happy today to welcome Linda Ealing-Lee to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Linda is Global Head of ESG and Climate Research at MSCI, the largest provider of ESG ratings and analytics to global institutional investors. Linda oversees all ESG and climate-related content and methodology, and she leads one of the largest teams in the world dedicated to identifying risks and opportunities arising from material, climate and ESG issues. Linda is also a member of MSCI's Executive Committee. Thank you very much, Linda, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, maybe before we start, if you can just tell us a little bit about your background and your current work focus, what you do. Well, I am the Global Head of ESG and Climate Research at MSCI. So in the investment industry, MSCI is best known as a leading index provider. So there's $14.5 trillion that's benchmarked to MSCI's indexes. Um, And so in my area of ESG and climate research, uh, MSCI is the largest provider of any type of environmental, social, and governance data and ratings and climate analytics to the global investment industry. So in my role... I'm responsible for all of the methodology and the content that we produce to support investors to incorporate ESG considerations into the investment process. There are about 2,000 institutional investors globally that are using our ESG and climate data, and we have over 270 analysts um, plus many dozens of technologists who are creating ratings and data sets that cover over 10,000 companies. So, um, you know, it's become quite a big operation, but it wasn't actually really very big at all when I joined MSCI in 2010. And that was through um, an acquisition that MSCI had made at the time um, of an independent ESG ratings provider called Innovest, which had created this predecessor to what is today MSCI's ESG ratings. Um, So, you know, I've really been in this field now for 13 or 14 years, um, and I had actually very accidentally sort of stumbled into this field um, from doing an academic research project. Um, so post my doctoral work um, in organizational behavior, I had been running a research center with some Harvard Business School professors, and we were developing this tool. It was really more of a survey instrument for measuring the drivers of long-term corporate performance. And I was looking around at the time to see whether you know, anyone else have been developing measurements in this area. And I really just kind of stumbled into this honestly quite obscure 
part of the world where people were producing scores and ratings to aggregate how companies were managing issues that are really difficult to compare, things like child labor in the supply chain and toxic emissions in their factory. So this is, you know, how I got very fascinated into this in this area and, and kind of got hooked into the ESG um, analytical world. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, just for uh, some of our listeners, can you explain what ESG actually means and why it matters? It's 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 a huge growth area. Um, uh, some figures uh, from uh, BlackRock uh, that it would be a trillion dollars uh, category by twenty thirty. Uh, so, just uh, give, give us a sense of 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 that, if you could. Sure. When when people say ESG, it really does mean you know, really cover a really broad range of areas. And it's really um, anything where um, investors are looking to incorporate environmental, social, and governance factors into their investment process or into their investment products in some way. And um, and I think that the reason um, it has grown so much is because um, there has been a, a, a huge, um, huge improvements in data and measurement. So we are able to measure things um, to do with the ESG characteristics of companies and investment characteristics that are um, that were previously difficult to capture. And then I think that there's a growing interest um, in knowing that this information um, actually provides views on companies' um, long-term. Um, risk and opportunities that are not actually well captured in um, conventional financial analysis. Yes. So I, I suppose the idea is in a sense that you just look at the profitability and that gives you one measure, but you really don't get a sense of, you know, whether a company is a good company or a bad company in terms of, let's say, its environmental activities, its footprint, its, uh, as you say, some of the social issues to do with child labor and things like that. Is, is that what you're saying? That, that, that by coming up with ways of, you know, uh, profits are, uh, in one sense, quite straightforward. They're, they're numerical. You can compare them compare them over time presumably when it comes to questions like esg you're talking about as you say very very different kinds of things and um difficult to to classify and compare they're difficult to classify and compare and i think that one other big difference is that they evolve more quickly so they really are about the fact that our society our environment is actually changing all around us in much more dynamic um, ways that than than we've been previously um, having to experience, um, and therefore you do need new types of measurements to 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 capture these kind of intangible risks and opportunities that can be very real and increasingly um, material to to um, to companies. Right, right. Now, so one side of this is pretty straightforward, I suppose, in a sense, risk, you know, that that uh, certain kinds of things are riskier and there are, you know, risks associated with environmental factors or social factors. And another side of it is is the returns, is the kind of profitability or the money that can be, I guess, that, that, that can come out of this uh, in some sense. I mean, I think Mark Carney said that, 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 that net, 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 net zero represents the greatest commercial opportunity of our age. Um, to, to what extent or is, is, is the work that you do driven uh, mostly by risk and trying to understand that first and foremost? Has that been the antecedents of the ESG? Is it changing? 
Well, I think opportunity is the other side of risk, right? So if you are able to better identify your risks, then um, then you'll find those opportunities and you're you're able to identify um, and anticipate risks that others are not necessarily seeing. I think that that is obviously a huge opportunity. Of course, on a systemic level at the moment, you know, we are at a very special juncture, I think, um, in, our, um, in our economy where I think that we are going to see a huge sea change that is akin to the industrial revolution. I do think that this transition to a net zero economy um, will really scramble the players and the winners and the losers in our in our in our current economy. And so I think that that always presents um, a lot of opportunities. And I think that you know Mark Carney is absolutely right that um, for investors and companies to be cognizant of that and really be ahead of the game will um, will make them um, better positioned to be to come out a winner rather than a loser. Right. But I can explain maybe a little bit how that works. I can see, for example, if a company uh, has a, you know, a water, it uses a lot of water it, uh, and somehow the water that it uses gets polluted and it increases, you know, they can no longer use that water and that impacts their business. You know, they've got to uh, somehow find new water supplies in one thing and another. And that's got a direct, you can see that. How, how, how would it, you know, this, 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 I guess, paradigm shift you're talking about, how, how does this work in the sense that you could, you know, uh, be a, a company that buys from a supplier that's operating in Africa that does create tremendous environmental problems, but fundamentally doesn't affect the economics of your business. You know, um, companies have by juicy responsibility to maximize the returns. Why should they care? Well, I think that companies, when they set up their facilities, may not necessarily be aware of all the environmental stresses that they're um, they're confronting, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down down the road. Um, and so, you know, one of the important um, uses of the measurements that, that we have in ESG and ESG ratings is, is to be able to kind of differentiate between um, the companies where their operations are going to be more resilient to these um, future risks. And, um, and therefore, you know, they, they really do care about kind of where they actually put their capital and they need to be putting their capital in places where it's not going to either contribute to or um, actually um, um, be damaged by the fact that they are, there are scarce scarcities and resource scarcities that they're going to run into. Right, but it mightn't affect them. I mean, it's this question of externalities, isn't it? You know, that there might be a problem, but if it doesn't affect the business's, you know, bottom line, why why should that company, well, why should the shareholders have to, you know, carry the cost of that, you could say? Because, you know, there are all kinds of environmental problems, but if it's not, you know, going to affect your company's profit, is that a question that that is, you know, at the heart of all of this? Well, I think that that is actually at the uh, the question is both a, a time frame um, as well as um, whether or not you can create your own little bubble. You know, if the world around you is actually shifting quite dramatically, right? so I think that there is this concept of the universal owner. So these are the asset owners and asset managers that are so large that they essentially have to um, hold a share or be an owner. Of, um, of a very wide range of companies and sectors um, around the world. And they do care about these externalities because an externality that is being created um, in one part of the portfolio will actually um, be borne, the cost will be borne by another part of their portfolio. So I think across the board, the reason you're seeing um, so much attention from the pension and sovereign wealth funds of the world, the very large institutional investors, is because they realize that they actually have to improve the entire system and the resilience of the system and not let these externalities get out of hand because they will end up bearing that cost, you know, somewhere 
um, else in, in their portfolio. You know, not to mention that, you know, many of these um, large investors are pension funds that are ma managing um, the, the retirement savings um, of, um, of many, many millions of, um, of savers. And, you know, their uh, uh, quality of life is actually impacted by a lot of these, these um, companies as well in their portfolio. So I think there is this kind of system-wide um, uh, effect that a lot more and more investors, especially the, the really large ones, are, are quite concerned with. Uh, with. Yeah, very, very interesting. Very interesting. And um, now you, you're one of a number of providers. I guess there are other providers out there. How does this differ from traditional, you know, kind of finance, financial metrics and so forth, and the rules that are around those? Um, you, you, you have presumably one set of ways, uh, broadly speaking, of, of, of measuring these different factors. Other companies have different. Um, so how, how does it work? Do, do companies choose which, which, which sets of measures they want? Do they differ substantially? Um, and and what, what's, the, what's the role here of, of regulation? And I know, you know, the, the financial regulation, the standardization of accounts took many decades. Um, we're at an early stage here. Um, you know, would regulation be a good thing to help? So that's a lot there to impact. So let me first actually just step back and um and talk about kind of the range of ESG data and in climate data. Um so so you know we are the largest provider of any type of environmental, social, and governance data and, and ratings. And that means that we provide anything any under the kind of environment, social, and governance umbrella that an investor may want to incorporate. Now um how do they actually do this? And, and what is it that, that investors are looking for? Well, we make a very clear distinction between investors' motivations for incorporating ESG. So you, you, you have both investor preference-driven motivations and you have kind of this investment or financially-driven motivation. Um, and we, we primarily so far have been talking about this financially-driven motivation. So traditionally, and, and, and what's been more conventionally portrayed, you know, ESG factors are used to match an investor's personal preference. So, you know, if you personally prefer not to hold stocks associated with tobacco, for example, then the ESG factor is actually matching the preference um, and um, of the investor and can be screened out of a portfolio. Um, and then more recently, you know, this category of individual preferences, um, there's been more of a, an interest to match preferences for having a positive impact um, in certain themes. So you prefer to hold stocks, for example, that might be um, involved in producing drugs for underserved markets, or in developing water-related technologies, you can actually match these factors to screen in those companies. So when we talk about ESG data, you know, there is this whole set that can be used to, to match whatever preferences that investors have. Now, the second category um, of investment or um, kind of financially driven motivations, um, you as an investor, you know, want to incorporate issue factors that could have a financial material impact on the companies that, that you might hold. And so the important thing is that these financially material issue factors are actually going to differ quite a lot between companies because they operate in very different industries. Um, and you know, we were just talking about water, you know, industries that are water intensive, the risk of facing water shortages, that's going to be a key risk factor. And it really doesn't matter whether you as a 
as a in terms of your personal preferences, care very much about you know access to water. But water stress is going to pose a financial risk to, to an industry. That's something we will incorporate um, into ESG rating. So when we talk about when you talk about sort of different providers or providers of ESG data sets um, that can be quite specialized, that can be used in different ways, and there are also providers of ESG ratings. So um, the in, you know in terms of kind of our ratings. You know, our objective is to measure a company's resilience to long-term industry material, environmental, social, and governance risks. And there can be other ESG ratings that have a different objective to that. Um, and then our process is using a rules-based methodology, um, which all of our clients actually have access to. So, so there, it is, there is a well-documented cookbook, if you will. It's not some sort of a secret sauce that produces these kinds of ratings. Um, and so our methodology is systematically identifying industry leaders and laggards based on their exposure to the industry-specific ESG risks and how well they manage those risks. And our scale goes from uh, leaders in an industry, a triple A to double A um, in the leaders category, all the way down to the laggards, which are the triple Cs. So, you know, there are a couple of distinguishing features that, that, um, that people can pay attention to if they're looking at different types of ratings. Um, you know, the, you know, for, in our case, if the MSCI issue rating, there is a great deal of scale and we really prize the consistency, right? Because we're rating over, you know, 8,500 companies, you know, 14,000 issuers and that maps the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of um, thousands of equity fixed income securities. We um, and we're collecting thousands of data points for these these companies. We're always aiming for consistency when we collect that data, and that's done by combining uh, the capabilities of a of a team of um, 270 plus analysts with technology. We are employing a lot of. Um, machine learning and AI-enabled techniques um, to identify and extract and then structure the data. So just the scale and the consistency is one element, and, and there may be other ratings that are more um, uh, analyst-based or subjective. Um, the second is, you know, we are uh, very focused on this forward-looking materiality where we're only putting into the ratings a small set of the issues that are most relevant to a company's core business models. And that depends on, um, it depends on the industry. There are 156 different industry models, if you will. And that has to be updated on an annual basis because um, ESG issues emerge and they become more important over time. And therefore you kind of have to choose different issues every single year um, that, are, that, are, that are dynamic. Um, and then um, I would also say that it's really important to know that what goes into um, a ratings model, the data sources will differ um, between different um, providers. We actually incorporate a lot of alternative data that is not um, corporate self-disclosure. Um, companies do disclose um, their ESG um, characteristics. Um, there's a lot of gaps. It's very hard to standardize. Um, but we also then supplement that with a lot of um, data sets from, you know, academia, from NGOs, regulatory and government data sources are very, very important input um, and media sources as well um, to kind of fill out that comprehensive picture of a company's um, ESG risk exposure. Um, um, and that's about 50% of the data inputs into a company rating in our case actually come from these types of alternative models. Um, and then there, finally, I think what's really important in this industry is, is, is um, a conversation about transparency, right? And so, you know, our methodology and our data are actually informed by very wide and regular consultations and feedback 
um, with investors who are our, our clients and the companies that that we rate. So um, they uh, every time we enhance the methodology and our annual review and updates of our methodology, we actually consult with all of our clients. Um, you know, the last time we did this a year ago, it, it was probably investors that represented over $27 trillion in investments that actually gave input into the methodology update. Um, and on the side of companies we rate, we have a dedicated platform that issuers use to access all the data that we collect on them so that they can validate that data, they can provide comments on that data, they can tell us that they have updated um, disclosures. Um, so, you know, we kind of sit at this intersection and we really do um, care a lot about the market feedback and be able to also provide the transparency of what actually goes into these ratings. That's very interesting. Now, clearly, uh, we're in uh, some kind of existential situation with respect to climate change or however you just describe it, but a tremendous uh, risk. Presumably, the E of the ESG has become tremendously more important. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I definitely think that at the moment, um, there is much more focusing of the minds, if you will, around the climate crisis and just uh, how little time we actually have left. This is um, an incredibly um, important point um, in our historical tra- trajectory here, and I think that um, I think that you know we are able to apply a lot more of the analytics around climate and climate metrics um, to be able to project you know how it is that companies are doing and also to to um, hold them to account a bit in terms of the the progress. Right. So you know what we have found is that you know if we take all of the publicly listed companies um, in the world as represented by um, MSCI's um, uh, uh, flagship index that contains about 9,000 companies or so, you know, we really are running out of time. We look at the emissions um, budget that these companies have to stay under. And when we calculate where they're actually headed, um, we're actually going to deplete um, the budget for staying under one and a half degree um, rise in a little over five years. So I think that there is a tremendous amount of focus on that and the fact that only about 10% of these companies are actually even projected to stay under their one and a half degree emissions budget. Um, Most of them have um, temperatures, if you will, um, the the temperature alignment that is much higher, that's closer to three degrees um, for most of these companies. So I think that there's now this focus on what is it that companies are doing? What is it they're committing to do? um, And how do we actually track their progress um, so that we can actually uh, make use of the the very uh, little amount of time that we actually have left to try to actually really turn things around and transition our economy? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, And maybe can you explain to me, how in, uh, under that kind of scenario you're talking about the increasing intensity, the attention to the environment, how a company like Shell can have an AA rating with you for its ESG, if that's the correct rating. I'm just trying to understand how a company which is at the heart of you know, carbon emissions, uh, one of the, you know, his, historically one of the greatest ca- carbon emitters, currently one of the greatest carbon emitters. This is, you know, across the industry, across the world, people, you know, agree one thing we need to do is cut fossil fuel emissions. How can a company like Shell have a double A rating? 
So as I said, um, in terms of the the way we look, we um, we approach the ratings. We are looking um, to differentiate companies within an industry. So there are industry there are you know, within the energy sector. You know, we're looking at the set of um, issues that are the most material for these companies, um, and they face very similar issues, right? And um, and we have to compare them um, uh, apples to apples, if you will. And so I think that when you're looking at any given company or any given industry, you are going to have highly rated companies versus others. Um, you know, I. I think that in the case of the uh, oil and gas sector, a lot of the focus has to do with what sort of commitments um, each of these companies are making um, to reach net zero. And we know that there's a very wide range from those that haven't actually even disclosed the most basics of their emissions um, to those that actually have um, started to make um, uh ambitious targets and started to kind of plan to actually reach those um, um, the, those ambitious targets. You know, so I, I do think that it's very important to kind of compare what the future trajectory of these companies are. Um, you know, the, the almost the simpler thing to do is to just say that there are entire se- sectors that you are not going to be um, invested in, but they do still continue to exist and they do still continue to put emissions in the air. And so how would you um, you know, within those sectors, try to differentiate them. That's how, you know, that's how you should really look, be looking at the ratings is that if you had to invest in that industry, um, how would you actually compare um, these um, these players in the industry uh, on a like-for-like basis and on, on ESG characteristics? Right, right. And would you, do you, would you understand that people might find that quite strange, that a company like Shell, which doesn't have a, you know, a, 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 you know which has a history and uh, ha- has these tremendous emissions, would still be pretty much at the top of the, you know, and is in various other indices, you know, on a similar basis. Um, yes, I think that I can completely see that that, that is um, that is uh, that might be jarring, right? Um, but I think that you kind of have to look across who their peers are. Right. And um, and who else is out there who also have similar histories, but may not necessarily have um, put in some some um, some plans or at least some indications that their uh, their risk management going forward um, might be different. Uh, and, and can you tell me, so you have, let's say just looking at the shell for a moment, don't think of a double A ready. To what extent do investors look at the overall rating and to what extent do they look at, you know, the, the obviously components of that? Because a, a particular company might be doing very well on its governance or might be doing very well, uh, you know, on, on social d- dimensions, as it were, uh, and not so well on environmental and and, and another company might have some, a, a rather different uh, mix. Um, to what extent, how's that taken into account? Yeah, so I think that um, investors are using the ratings as a way to dig further into uh, specific companies. And so we definitely provide the whole range of the underlying scores and the data and the full drill down. So you can actually um, uh, just be looking for the lowest scoring of a comp- um, on any, any particular issue for a company, um, you can definitely look at just the environmental scores or even very specific scores like their carbon emissions management um, um, and so forth. So I think that that's really this top level rating. I know it gets a lot of uh, the attention, but there is a full set of um, data and, and, and scores and analysis that un- underpin that that investors are using. 
Yeah, right. Now, I, I, I mean, I've spoken to investors uh, on and off over the years. Um, uh, it's, it's as you say, it's an area where there's a lot of change taking place at the moment. But tr- traditionally, it's been quite difficult to get good data. Where are we on the trajectory, would you say, in terms of the quality of the data? Clearly, you know, looking very closely at climate change data, you're looking for new sources, proxies, all kinds of things like that. Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, where where we are now, so first of all, we've already come a long ways, right? Like t- today, I know that there is a lot of concern about the quality of the data, but it is far more robust and nuanced um, than um, it was even just five years ago. And that's partially due to um, a bit more corporate disclosure, but it's also because um, big data and AI techniques have, have allowed us to get a lot more information and, and a, um, a better ways to kind of structure and structured information. But in terms of kind of where we are now in the trajectory of ESG and, and climate metrics, um, it's really important to kind of break down what's actually in a metric, right? So there are really two parts you you need to make a metric. You need the input to the metric, which includes, it can be the company provided information. It can be these alternative data sources I was talking about, like government databases. But there's also the model or the methodology for turning that input um, that is not comparable, um, that is in different units and so forth, into a measure that can actually be compared across um, some set of companies or security. So both of the components of a metric are getting better, but although I would still I would say that that at the moment, kind of the methodology um, has developed faster, and we're still constrained by a lot of the poor inputs that you need to make robust metrics. Um, and so, right now, in terms of what's getting the most in, uh, attention to improve that input um, is on corporate disclosure. Um, it has actually gotten better in terms of volume, but it's still very much often in the form that that makes the input. Um, very difficult um, to compare. There are a lot of qualitative disclosure, a lot of things about you know companies with their policies on this and that. And what we really need are quantitative measures and standardized units. And so there, there I think there are two efforts that are that are, um, are kind of helping that along. Um, one is that there are standard setting bodies like the uh, IFRS Foundation. Um, that is establishing a sustainability reporting board to tackle this issue of setting some standardized reporting for, for companies that can improve these inputs. And we, we really hope that that could improve the quality. There are also regulatory efforts now, um, especially around climate, that could, we hope, significantly improve the core set of inputs that we really need to get to better metrics. So what we have called on, um, called for at MSCI are um, mandatory reporting for companies on their full emissions footprint. So that means their direct, indirect, and their value chain emissions. So that's scope one, um, scopes one, two, and three. And on three across all categories of scope three emissions. And, and right now the issue with scope three emissions, apart from the fact that very few companies um, report on it, is that they cherry pick which categories that they want to report. So it's completely honestly pretty useless um, and, and really not very, very, um, very uh comparable. So um, we've also called for reporting on companies' largest facilities, because I think without knowing companies' locations, you really don't have any kind of real precision on their exposures to different physical risk hazards, you know, whether that's floods or wildfires or anything else. Um, and then finally, we also call for reporting on companies' largest suppliers. So we we know through this pandemic that supply chains um, were, were very strained and they continue to be. And so I think when we get to the greater frequency of climate hazards, that's going to introduce more supply chain bottlenecks. And without 
kind of this basic information about a company and who their biggest um, suppliers are, I think investors are going to be pretty limited in their ability to assess um, some of the risks. So I think that we've, you know, we've called for this uh, this mandatory um, disclosure, um, but I, I do want to just say on on kind of the regulatory efforts to to compel um, globally standardized disclosure. I do want to caution, and this is um, something that I also spoke about um, when I had the opportunity to address the, the G20 um, policymakers um, earlier in the summer in, in, um, in Venice. You know, I think there's a big difference between mandating standardized disclosures so that the inputs into the metrics, which is what I was talking about, and the, um, the, can have a stronger um, a foundation. But it's actually very different to mandate how analysis is actually done and um, um, and to mandate disclosure on the outcome of the analysis. And so what I mean by that is that if you're compelling disclosure by companies of how much risk they face from climate hazards, you're going to get companies that are going to have different ways to arrive at that answer. So it becomes completely not comparable for, for investors um, and it's more um, gameable actually for, for companies. You know, They will all do it in a slightly different way um, so I think that any kind of um, regulatory um, mandates on reporting should simply ask companies to disclose where their operations are, and then investors can decide based on that information how much of the specific climate hazards um, are tied to those locations, how they feel that that would impact the valuation. You know, investors and analysts really do actually have different views about where those risks are. Um, so differentiating, I think, between what should be disclosed um, versus what should be left to analysts to measure is actually, I think, a really important distinction as we go down this, this route of, um, of a mandating disclosure. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Yes, 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 yes. And so in which markets are you seeing most interest and most progress in mandating uh, climate disclosures? Well, we see them really across many, many markets. Um, I think that the the task force um, on climate-related disclosure, the TCFD, have set out these guidelines, and many um, uh, financial regulatory authorities have been studying um, the TCFD guidelines and, and um, are have put out consultations in terms of, you know, to what extent and to what which aspects of the TCFD um, disclosure guidelines um, they should be um, they should be looking at. You know, we've had this, of course, at the EU um, Sustainable Finance um, Initiative um, has mandatory climate disclosures. We know that the UK um, SCA has been looking at um, climate disclosures and just mandatory disclosures more generally. Um, we know that the the US SEC has been looking at it. Um, and have put out a large consultation um, earlier in the year around um, mandating climate-related disclosures. Um, we're seeing that in Asia, in various markets, in, in Hong Kong, for example, uh, the monetary authority there. So it, there's really, really um, quite a lot of momentum um, across many uh, regulatory ju uh, jurisdictions and markets to compel mandatory disclosure, especially on climate-related um, risks. Right, right. Now, if I might just come back to Shell for one moment, um, just to look at Shell, because recently it was in the headlines, uh, the court in the Netherlands told Shell to cut emissions by, well, I don't know, 40, 45% by 2030. So obviously, under the court ruling, they weren't happy with the commitments that Shell had made to reduce carbon emissions. And yet somehow it still has a double A rating. And yet it's now been mandated to, now the courts have told it to cut emissions. So 
how, how does that make sense? Yeah, so I think that, you know, as I as I come back to what, what I was saying before, you, you, you do have to compare, for example, Shell's um, carbon reductions against other companies that it's in the same industry with, right? And um, and I think that one really important aspect um, of this court ruling, but in general kind of decarbonization targets is that at the moment, there are lots of companies making decarbonization targets. I mean, there are also many that are not. Um, and you kind of have to, there's no really um, easy way to compare them apples to apples. And how would you be able to know whether Shell or someone else um, that have come out with decarbonizations are actually aligned with, um, a, a world where we're trying to limit warming to one and a half degrees to two degrees. Um, and so this is really a measurement problem and a, um, and, and, um, uh, that one that we have tried to tackle because we have actually launched a, uh, carbon targets scorecard for companies to be able to compare their targets to each other and to be able to say that, you know, how comprehensive are these um, decarbonization targets, how ambitious are they, and how far would they be from meeting a one and a half or two degree target, um, and then how feasible it is. So if you were to look at, say, Shell's decarbonization targets, it would become, um, it would have become clearer that they were um, at, uh, at that point still a little a little far off from really actually net zero and that that there would have to be more commitments made to get to kind of that net zero decarbonization commitment. So comparing that against um, another company, let's say Exxon, that has not necessarily made anywhere close to the same kind of decarbonization targets, you know, again, we're really having to compare companies um, apples to apples. I mean, it really doesn't make sense to compare uh, Shell to, say, um, uh, Amazon or Google, right? So so I, I do think it's really important when people are looking at these ratings that we're still talking about industry relativity. Yes, yes. So um, for a certain category of investor, they might just say, listen, I don't want to have... Uh, uh, any investments in companies that are that have significant beyond whatever level you might choose levels of carbon emissions so that would automatically cut out all kinds of companies with particular they don't they wouldn't be interested in how it was doing relative to some companies or the kind of targets that had set but basically saying you know we don't want you know big polluters where would that show up in your ratings the ratings are not the, the ratings are industry relative so there isn't a, a there isn't an industry all with the same rating. So I think a lot of investors do want to um, uh, take exposure off of certain sectors, and especially let's say fossil fuels. And we have data sets that um, allow um, investors to screen their screen their entire portfolio for any company that has any involvement um, with fossil fuels or to derive a certain um, uh, percentage of revenues from from fossil fuels. Um, and um, and there are a lot of different investor preferences, and all of this ESG data is actually um, at their disposal to be able to construct the kinds of portfolios that they want. Um, so it not everything can be in the rating, right? The, the rating is yeah. only taking yeah. account of a small set of issues that are relevant for that industry. You can absolutely screen in or screen out um, different types of sectors, different types of activities. We have a wealth of data to be able to allow that um, um, that that portfolio adjustment that, that you would like. I would also say what's really important is that, that that same data is used to look at funds and be able to compare them apples to apples. So you can have, today you can have a number of funds that sound similar However, you can use the data, and we do provide it actually on our website. You can go and look up 
um, the compositions of the over 30,000 funds. And you can see which of those funds have a certain percentage um, of the revenues um, of the companies um, derive a certain percentage of the revenues for fossil fuels. Right. So so yeah, it is yeah, completely yeah. Tr- it is transparent, but people have to avail themselves of that data and be able to kind of look underneath the hood. You really do have to look at the ingredients, you know, and, and yeah. it's it exists. These options are there's so many options at the moment in terms of how much exposure you want to have from zero. You just don't want to be um, um, involved in um owning any shares of energy related companies or fossil fuel or even just coal or anything else you can you can have that um or you want to be fully invested but you only want to be um to choosing the companies that have um the the stronger environmental profiles within the, each of those industries there are a lot of options yeah. Yeah, very interesting, right? How do you get rid of ESG greenwashing? I mean, greenwashing is a phenomenon. Um, there has been some contentious uh, discussions recently about what ESG means, whether it's being, you know, being, uh, uh, whether it means what it says, how companies are, you know, some investors are, you know, classifying, you know, uh, whole 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 categories uh, of 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 uh, you know, in, in investee companies as being ESG. I mean. Uh, According to some some uh, figures or uh, measures, you know that, that some of the largest climate funds are pretty similar to a Standard and Poor's 500. You know, by and large. Um, so I guess the question, I suppose, is uh, what, wh- how, where would the ESG greenwashing show up in your in your uh, analysis? And I suppose so. You were talking about this interesting question of the targets that companies would have set themselves for reducing carbon emissions. How many layers do you take off there to see what's really happening? You know, to what extent are you know senior management's uh, uh, payment uh, contingent linked to carbon emissions and and other measures like that? I suppose which would be show the the real commitment that a company has to actually reduce. Yeah, there's a lot there. So so I, I do I do want to address the larger um, greenwashing focus at the moment in the market, but specific to your question about verifying, if you will, companies' um, um, actions, um, you know, I said at the outset that a, a very important part of our ratings process is actually using alternative data sources, right? And that's because we think that some company self-disclosure really only tells um, half the picture. And so so I think that it is a really important, you know, one of the reasons we go to government databases and, and look at kind of environmental violations and, and health and safety violations and those types of data. Um, and also, you know, we do actually uh, um, look at a lot of NGO and, and the media reports is because you want to be able to verify, you want to match that against what the company says their policies are, because they can have yeah. really amazing policies that but clearly they don't work if there are um, these types of contraventions. I mean, this is actually what a, a huge part of our analysis is all about, is to actually um, um, diminish that, that ability for companies to just put out, you know, beautiful policies that are not then followed, right? So, so, so I think that's very important. Now, to get, just to kind of get back to the larger question of um, greenwashing, I, I, there's a great deal of focus, um, obviously, um, at the moment. And I guess my, my personal view is that a lot of the, the, the talk about greenwashing is, I find them a little simplistic, right? Um, And I think there's a little bit of a, 
um, <laughs> there's a little bit of a clickbait quality to them right? because we actually have two different problems um, that, are, that are similar and they're both about greenwashing. We have this very genuine deep problem that it's a very easy at the moment for companies and, and for funds to claim to be green or to be claimed to be sustainable without a lot of actions to back that up. Um, but we equally have the problem that it's really easy to impugn the integrity of companies and funds by holding them to a standard that they themselves didn't actually profess, right? And so the root of both of these problems is that we actually lack a common definition that's precise and that don't mean different things to different people. So we're lacking transparency also on what's underneath the hood, which we talked about a little bit. And then we lack an easy yeah. to understand metric that gives you these apples to apples comparisons. So, you know, what we really need is a, a kind of a nutrition or an ingredients label for funds and for companies so that people can actually look at the ingredients and not just like the packaging or, or the name. So if we if we talk about um, the, the the terms, you know, that that is actually one of the, the serious problems that we have. Um, we don't have a standardization of definitions. And because everybody now lumps everything together, you know, if a fund says that it is ESG or sustainable or climate, there's some sort of assumption that these are interchangeable terms. And then the fund is supposed to meet everyone's every wish and assumptions that are related to ESG or sustainable or, or climate. And that just can't be the case because it's not even possible, you know, to meet all the different definitions. You know, all your you and my definitions might be a little different. So you do end up in the situation where, uh, let's say, a fund says it's integrating ESG considerations. It might even explicitly say in its perspective somewhere that it aims to be exposed to every industry, but is only selecting the top companies in, in, in each industry that demonstrates, let's say, strong labor practices, you know, or, or something um, or something else. Um, but then it might be called out for greenwashing because it includes um, energy company stocks and the fund didn't actually ever say that it's either fossil fuel free or that it is Paris aligned or, or anything of the sort. So there's just this kind of mismatch of expectations um, where if we're not all using the same words to mean the same things um, and, and, you know, we can't be clear about our intentions. I mean, I think this is where a lot of the our problems are, are, um, are coming up with, with the greenwashing. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. What can be done to get more alignment about the, the common understandings of these terms uh, in general? And I'm just wondering also, uh, you know, how this kind of thing fits in. Well, I mean, I really would like to see the investment industry converge on some common definitions and really kind of make an, a, a commitment to report on the ESG characteristics that they're fund holding so that so people can actually um, have that transparency, make that apples to apples comparisons for themselves. We already are seeing um, some regulatory movements in this area um, in Europe. The, the sustainable finance regulations do compel um, funds to declare whether um, they belong to different categories of, uh, of sustainable funds and, and they have to report on a certain number of metrics. We really would like to see some mandatory disclosure, um, certainly by companies in terms of the, the core climate metrics that I was talking about um, in the locations of their facilities. These are really the core ingredients of being able to um, actually get to build some sort of a common language. Um, the other thing is, you know, I think that we have been, um, we have launched a quarterly progress report of the public companies, um, publicly listed companies in the world. So this is the MSCI net zero tracker. I think that we have now some of the core ingredients to be able to, to talk about companies' um, net zero trajectories. You know, it, it really is looking at their emissions 
instance, really looking at how comprehensive their decarbonization targets are and measuring whether or not they're going to be over their emissions budget or under their emissions budget and, and what temperature that actually implies for the world if the company goes on that trajectory. And I think that if we can look at the same measures um, you know, on a quarterly basis for this, the, the comprehensive set of public companies, you know, that actually lays the groundwork for having a, a common language. Now, this net zero tracker sounds very interesting. Presumably other companies have other kinds of measures. What is, do you think, are the biggest obstacles to this language, this common language? Uh, from, from what you're saying, it sounds to be tremendously important, this foundational quality. Uh, yes, I think it's extremely important um, that the industry comes together and is actually um, aligned around what it is that we're measuring and how we actually go about measuring it. The Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosure, the TCFD, has been very focused on um, getting companies and investors to be focusing on forward-looking metrics, right? So where, where climate ESG metrics really differ from accounting and investment metrics is that it has to be forward-looking. It doesn't really help us very much to know what a company's um, carbon footprint was, you know, last year, right? And it's actually where it's going. And so it's actually set out a set of guidelines as to what makes a good forward-looking metric. It has a set of, um, it laid out a set of um, judgments and recommendations. And so, you know, we at MSC are very committed to that industry standard and building that industry standard. So our temperature metric, our implied temperature metric for companies um, are actually following that TCFD guideline. I I would like to see that all the industry um, players do that as well so that we can all be talking about the same things that are constructed in the same ways. I think it's extremely important that, that we try to do that. And do you think you're going to see that in the next few years? I'm optimistic about that. I'm not optimistic about a lot of things, but I have to say I do feel like the the, the industry has actually um, be, been rallying around the, the need for an industry standard. We we are one of the founding members of the, the net zero financial service um, providers where we will be looking at our own products and services and seeing what it is that we can do to reorient them in order to enable um, a faster transition to a net zero economy. Fantastic. Uh, what wonderful vision. And thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time to explain the detailed nuances of this very important area. And I wish you all the best of success in the future. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Client Earth is an environmental law charity with a unique approach using the law to create powerful change that protects life on Earth. To meet the global challenges facing our planet, Client Earth used the power of the law to change systems for lasting change, informing, implementing and enforcing law and advising decision makers. Client Earth believes that a future in which people and planet thrive together isn't just possible, it's essential. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.